everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Rebecca, and I am joined here once again by the lovely Journey and Nicole. Uh, this week, we decided to do things a little bit differently. So normally, we cover a case study followed by a science or a topic that was involved in the case. However, today we wanted to tell you about three different psychological experiments that have shaped the way we view the world, and also how they've changed the ethical procedures surrounding psychological studies. Uh, Nicole is going to be telling us about the Milgram experiment, uh, then Journey is going to be telling us about the Stanford Prison experiment, and I will be discussing the Ash experiment. Uh, so just before we get started, I would like to give a brief note that there are listeners' discretions, uh, as there are detailed descriptions of prisoner abuse and mistreatment uh, when talking about the Stanford Prison experiment. Um, yeah, so with that being said, we'll get into the first study. Uh, the first one we're covering is the ASH experiment, and it's really just because it was the first one that took place. There's no real reason besides that. Uh, let's get into it. <laughs> so the ASH study was a psychological experiment that was conducted in 1951 by Solomon E. Ash uh, that observed the effects that group pressure or societal pressure have on making judgments. So while the study is now very popularly known as the ASH conformity study or ASH paradigm, the original research paper was titled Effects of Group Pressure Upon the Modification and Distortion of Judgments. ASH states in the original article that the purpose of this research was to study the social and personal conditions that influence an individual's urge to either resist or yield to group pressures when the pressure exerted by the group is contrary to what is believed to be factual or correct, quote unquote. So that's a real fancy way of saying, is peer pressure effective in making people do things they don't want to do? So for this study, Ash recruited 50 male participants from the Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania for what the participants believed was just going to be a vision test of sorts. Uh, so to do the experiment... One male participant was placed into a group with seven other men who were believed by the participant to be fellow participants, um, but they were actually, I guess, in on the experiment. Uh, they were instructed by the experimenter prior to the trials to give wrong answers to the tests. So for the sake of this discussion, we'll call the participant a participant, and we'll call the people that are in on the experiment the actors. So... Once we are in this group of eight of one participant, seven actors, each individual was then shown the same photo that had four lines on it, uh, just for sake of discussing how the test worked. The control line is called line one, and then the three lines to compare to are A, B, and C. So lines A, B, and C are all of different lengths, and either A, B, or C matched the length of line one, and they had to determine which of those three was the correct match. So the men were given the simple instruction of identifying out loud and one at a time in a row, which line of A, B, or C matches line one, with the experimenter having uh, always been the participant to respond last. So in the group of eight, they were seated in the eighth position. So there were 18 trials conducted for each of the 50 participants with differing line lengths and responses by the actors for each question. Uh, just to make it a little bit more real and to kind of 
evades suspicion on behalf of the participant. For some of the trials, the actors were instructed to give the correct answer, just kind of, again, to ease suspicion so that we wouldn't get any biases. Um, However, for other ones, which it was over half of the 18 trials, the actors were instructed to give unanimously wrong answers. So in total, the actors were instructed to give unanimous erroneous answers for 12 out of the 18 trials, with the difference in length between the correct line chosen and the erroneous line being anywhere between three quarters to one and three quarters of an inch. So the procedure forced four main factors on the participants that allowed Ash to collect simple quantitative measures of the majority effect, uh, is what he was calling it, by observing the frequency of errors in the direction of the distorted estimates of the majority group. And Ash was using a lot of, like, 50s, I'm really smart, this is my paper kind of jargon. Um, But that's basically, like, obviously some lines were shorter than the control, some lines were longer, But if the participant responded incorrectly, but it was still like long, say, say the incorrect answer given was line C, and that was the longest line. And line B was like also wrong, but still longer than line one, then they would consider that in the direction of uh, what the actors had given which might clear some stuff up later when I'm talking more about frequencies. Um, But the four main factors uh, that Ash was kind of looking at in the situation were that the participant was put in a contradictory situation in which the known factual evidence. So like what the participants actually seeing with his own eyes is different than what's being presented unanimously by another seven people. The second factor is that, both the participant and the actors are part of an immediate situation. So the actors are always around the participant physically and the participant can't take the time kind of privately to think about the decision he's making before he makes it. The third one is that all eight men in the groups were required to verbally state their judgment in each trial, meaning that the participant was required to outwardly object or oppose to the answer given unanimously if they did disagree. And then the fourth factor was that the situation uh, possessed a self-contained character, is what Ash called it, um, which just means that the participant is not able to avoid or evade the dilemma at hand uh, by looking to like external things, like looking at someone not part of the experiment for an answer, or looking at a ruler, or just other external variables that could impact his decision. So once the 18 trials were completed... Each participant was asked a series of questions in an interview regarding various aspects of the trials and kind of what they thought about it. And the purpose of this was to gather qualitative data that could hopefully offer insight on whether participants felt like they had to agree with the group uh, and whether they deliberately or compulsively abandoned their perception of the tests or the lines. So if they started to answer incorrectly? Did they do that on purpose because they wanted to fit in or did they not realize that they were giving wrong answers? And then finally, um, after all of this, after collecting quantitative data, which is like statistical measurements and actual numbers and qualitative data, which is what we get from like interviews and people speaking their opinion, 
once all of that was finished, the trials and the interviews, the participant was fully debriefed on the actual purpose of the study and how it was not simply just a vision test, but actually a deception in order to uh, obtain unbiased results of how people react to having to conform in a situation where everybody gives a different answer than you, but their perception is factually wrong. So the results of this experiment did support Ash's hypothesis that when put in a situation where participant peers unanimously agreed on an answer that the participant didn't, many of them were more likely to provide an answer that closely aligned with their peers. I do say many, but it's not the majority. Uh, In total, 32% of the participants, so when we're looking at the group of 50, that would be about 16 participants, uh, their responses demonstrated a clear movement towards the majority, meaning that their estimates were either identical to or in the direction of the erroneous estimates by the majority. So they were closer in length to the majority than they were to the actual correct line. And while this doesn't seem like a large percentage, like it, it is less than one third of the population, uh, we do have to remember that in psychological statistics, and I guess statistics in general, the researcher is analyzing statistical significance, which put simply is the way in which researchers determine whether the results they obtained are simply by chance, or if there was actually something, if there was actually a uh, a cause by something to make those effects. So in this case, social pressure. So in this case, the results of the experimental trials were compared to that of control trials in which there was no pressure from actors. So all of the actors also gave correct responses in the control. And in the control, they saw that less than 1% of the participants made erroneous guesses compared to 32% in the experimental. Wow, that's a big difference like statistically speaking like one percent and 32 percent may not sound like a lot but that's quite a lot (laughs) i know i was thinking the same thing like when i was researching this and i first saw 32 percent i was like oh well that's still not great but then when i looked at like comparing to the control trial i was like oh okay this actually did have a significant like impact on these participants So to further analyze the results of the study, Ash compared to the group of individuals who responded correctly majority of the time, despite what their peers said, which he called the independent group, to those who conformed to the group when they said it wrong, which he called the yielding group. So through observing the participants during the study and analyzing their responses to the interview questions, Ash found that even these two groups even though you could separate them into two, like these ones told a lot of wrong answers, these ones told all the right answers, they still had a lot of individual differences within each group. So just to go into that a little bit more, in the independent group, Ash found that there were participants who were independent based on their confidence that their perceptions were correct. So they found that even though these groups were met with conflict on behalf of the majority, they were just really confident in their answers and they didn't let the pressure of their peers deter them from what they believed to be true. And then there was a group within the dependents that he called those who were withdrawn. And he described those who were withdrawn uh, as being much less prone to kind of spontaneous outbursts and sparking discussions as the confident individuals, uh, sort of because they didn't want to start arguments 
but they continued to answer correctly despite their peers saying something different because they had their own personal principles and morals that they felt it necessary to be their own individual despite what the crowd is saying. So then finally for the independent group, there were those who experienced considerable doubts and stress and tension in their responses, but they still continued to answer correctly as they felt it necessarily sorry, necessary to do well on the tasks at hand. He didn't elaborate on that a whole lot more. Like, I don't know if they thought it was necessary because they wanted to make sure the researcher got the right data, or I don't know if they just felt like, if all these people are wrong, then I followed them, then, man, I'm not so smart. But either way, they, like, throughout the interviews showed a lot of doubt and stress, but they still answered correctly. There was actually an excerpt from the observation notes of one of the independent participants who had doubts. And uh, it explains that one of the doubtful participants appeared very confident in the beginning of the trials, but as they continued, his confidence appeared to diminish because his answers started to get a lot quieter until he was basically whispering his answers at the end of it. Uh, And he pretty much stopped smiling and at some point started like nervously smiling and was also accompanied... His responses were accompanied by him saying things such as, I always disagree, darn it, and I can't help it, it's that one. So I found that kind of interesting. Like, they're so unsure of themselves because of everyone else, but they're still sticking to to their gut. So additionally, in this interview... um, with the doubtful participant, they were asked how they would react or respond if they were in a similar situation, but in a real life scenario. So not a lab experiment. And he said, quote, I would follow my own view, though part of my reason would tell me that I might be wrong, unquote. So again, that's interesting. I'm glad to hear he'd say that, but obviously what we say in a lab setting is going to be different than what we actually experience in real life. Um, But moving on from the independent group, in terms of the yielding group, which consists of the individuals who agreed with the majority on at least half of the Aranus responses, that Ash identified three subgroups within this uh, for individual differences of their reactions and responses. So he gave these subgroups three different names, and I'll just go over them in their description one by one. But the first one was distortion of perception under the stress of group pressure, which Ash stated consisted of very few participants. I think I read that there was like maybe five participants in this group. Um, And in this group, the participants were not aware of the fact that their estimates were were wrong and distorted by their peers they just eventually came to perceive that like the estimates that were given by the majority and by the group he kind of just started to accept those as the correct answers and sort of started to see those as the correct answers for himself as well so it's kind of like consciously he didn't realize anymore that he was actually wrong so The next subgroup is labeled distortion of judgment, and this was where most participants in the yielding group fell. This group was characterized as those who conclude during the trials that their own perception is wrong, so the majority must be correct. Because obviously, if this many people are sharing the same response, then how can I be right? So these participants in the qualitative interviews reportedly felt 
this way because they had a lot of self-doubt and they lacked a lot of confidence in their answers. Um, and they felt a really strong tendency to join the majority, just kind of out of lack of confidence or wanting to fit in. So then finally, we have the distortion of action group. And this group is individuals who did still believe that their responses, or sorry, their responses were correct and that their responses that differed from the majority were right and the majority was totally wrong. However, their confidence in their answers couldn't surpass their fear of being perceived as different or inferior to the group. Uh, so they suppressed their own observations and followed the majority, knowing that they were wrong just to fit in with them. So Ash did get some pretty compelling results from his initial experiment that supported his hypothesis. Um, however, there was still multiple confounding variables that could have affected results that weren't considered in the first experiment. And so as such, Ash conducted several variations of his classic experiment, which sought to observe how the group size unanimity, that's a fun word, how the group size, unanimity, and task difficulty affected the results. So firstly, due to the fact that that this experiment only really worked because the participants were deceived throughout the experiment to prevent biases. Uh, the group of participants had to change for every variation. However, everything else except the dependent variable was kept the same. So the sex of the participants was the same. Um, the sample size did differ a little bit, but it was around all the same. And they, of course, with the statistics, kind of like even that out. Um, the number of people in the experiment largely remain the same, except for the third variation that I'll talk about. And the task remained the same again, except for one of the variations I talked about, but basically all of the main factors that could influence this to be different results stayed the same unless it was specifically being worked on by Ash. So the first, um, sorry, I have a question. Yeah. Um, was it all men or was it um okay it was yeah it I was if you mentioned that or not yeah it was all men i believe they said they were all students of the same college in pennsylvania okay okay thank you no problem and also i they are all men but just given their college population he didn't specify age but i would say that majority of the participants were likely like college age probably between 18 and 30 so that is another factor that could impact things but i'm sure there's been studies done on that too <laughs> um but yeah for the first experimental variations conducted uh they looked at the effect of non-unanimous majorities so as in the classical study the majority of the people uh, answering incorrectly, they did so unanimously. So if the wrong answer was C, every one of the seven actors would respond C as the wrong answer. However, for uh, the first variation of looking at non-unanimous non majorities, that's a really hard word, I apologize. <laughs> um, there were two participants placed in a group with six actors instead of one actor or one participant with seven actors. So these participants were seated in positions four and eight in the seating arrangement every time with actors in between them. In this way, as long as the first participant to respond gave the correct response, 
and the other followed suit, then they would both be against the majority and not alone in their perception. This obviously could have a problematic or confounding variable, because if the participant seated in seat four answered, uh, who answered first conformed with the first three actors, then that would still make it appear that there's a unanimous decision that the wrong answer is correct. And that would probably make it more likely that the participant in seat eight would be the only person with a different perception. So they would probably be more likely to choose and to conform. So as such, there was another variation of this variation um, where he once again put one participant with seven actors, but this time there were six actors who were supposed to unanimously agree with the wrong choice, and one actor who was still in seat four would always give the correct result. So this way, um, there was always at least one other person besides the participant who differed from the Aaronist responses, and he always answered before the participant. So the results of this variation found that with one, sorry, the variation with two participants, uh, the frequency of them who conformed with the incorrect answers dropped from 32% from the original to 10.4%. And then in the variable with one actor giving a correct answer, it dropped again to just 5.5% of the act or the participants conforming. So that's pretty neat. Even just one person in a group of a majority who chooses to say something different could have an impact on other people's opinions or perceptions. So there were three more variations on the unanimity variation. Uh, but because I have two other types of variations that aren't unanimity to go over, I'm just going to briefly go over like a description about these and like their statistic. So the first one for unanimity was what he called the withdrawal of a true partner. And this is when one actor, just like the last variation, was told to give the correct answer, uh, but he was only told to give the correct answer for the first half of the questions. And then later in the trials, he would conform to the Aaronist majority to see what the effect on the participant would be. So this variation saw that the frequency of individuals who conformed rose way back up again to 28.5%. Um, I'm not positive how many truthful ones the participant did end up saying in the first half of the trials, but it seems just by the statistic that they likely followed suit and stopped kind of being the minority as soon as the other actor did so. And then the next one was the late arrival of a true partner. And in this one, it's when the majority breaks away from the major uh, majority. Sorry, the actor breaks away from the majority. So it's the opposite of the last one in which he gives wrong answers for the first half of the experiment. And then in the second half, he kind of strays away from the group and starts saying the correct answers until the end of it. And again, this had an opposite effect of the withdrawal variation, where it dropped the frequency of conforming participants back down to 8.7%. And then finally, there was the presence of a compromise partner in which the majority who was giving wrong answers would give the most extremely wrong answer they could. So if... For example, the control line was one inch long and they had three lines and one of them was four inches in the difference. 
then they would choose the four inch line as the correct one. Um, however, there was one actor who would still give an incorrect answer, but they'd give an incorrect answer that was closer to the size of the original line. So if the line was two inches, they'd give the line that was three inches. Um, so this variation resulted in 75.7% of the total participants conforming with the actors. Which I found really interesting, but I guess it's because majority are giving one answer that's wrong, and then one person is giving another answer that's wrong. So you're like, oh, shoot, I can't give another wrong different answer. So then they just kind of feel forced to choose one or the other. Um, so moving away from unanimity... The next major variation that Ash had conducted was whether the size of the group that the participant responds to the trials with has any effect on conforming. So for these trials, the majority always remained unanimous, so they always gave the same wrong answer. However, the size of the unanimous majority was changed. Ash conducted this experiment variation numerous times. He tested the effects when the group of actors was 16, when it was eight, four, three, two, and just one actor respectively. So we did different trials for each of these groups. Um, I found this one pretty interesting because I thought that the, like what I would have expected personally was that the largest majority to have the biggest effect on the frequency would have been like the largest group. So the group with 16 actors giving fake results against a 17th individual who has a different opinion, I would have assumed that the frequency of people conforming would be the highest. But it was actually that when there was only three people in the majority, the frequency uh, was risen to 32%, which matched the original experiment. And groups four, eight, and 16 didn't conform any more than group three. So basically, any amount of unanimity in a group of people bigger than three isn't really going to have much more of an effect than it would if there was only three people disagreeing with you. Um, so also, which I found not actually... This was this one was a bit of a no-brainer when there was only one other person besides the participants. So they were testing one participant, one actor, actor says something wrong. The urge to conform diminished significantly, and there was basically no effect found. Uh, they found that only 3% of their participants conformed with the actor when there was only one actor. So the final experimental variation conducted by Ash for this experiment in particular was on the stimulus situation. So to do this, the, sorry, Ash changed the discrepancies between the control line and the three that were to be compared to it. So again, just brief example, uh, in the extreme condition, if line one was two inches long, the other three lines, lines A, B, and C, could be anywhere between an additional like two and seven inches long or two and seven inches shorter. Um, and then in the minute condition, which is a name I made up for it because I had no other way to differentiate them. Um, in the minute condition, the control line, so line one, might be compared to lines that were only like 0.5 to one inch in the difference in length. Um, Ash didn't specify the percentages of frequency for these variations, which I found a little strange given he gave percentages for everything else. 
Um, but he did explain that they found that in the minute change condition, so very little change in the line size, the frequency of conformity did increase, but they hypothesized that it's potentially because at this point, participants themselves aren't even completely sure which line is correct. They're kind of leaning on their peers to kind of help them determine what's right. And then for the extreme change variation, this one surprised me. There was very little change in the frequency to conformity, even when the line increased to like seven inches in the difference. Like it it didn't change much from, I believe, 32%. Again, it didn't give percentages, but they said it didn't change significantly. So yeah, I found like, I feel like you'd be able to see a difference in two inches and seven inches. And I feel like you would know they're like pulling your leg when they all agree on the long, the wrong one, but that's just me. Um, but yeah, that basically in a nutshell is the ash experiment. It's been highly influential in the field of social psychology. However, it definitely hasn't been influential without its criticism. So while the ethics of this experiment are pretty sound, especially comparing them to the next two experiments we're talking about, um, other researchers have been questioning the applicability of this study uh, to real life because, I mean, it was done in such a rigorously controlled lab setting that even though there's obviously some concerns about just how applicable these are to real life, like, I don't think we're ever going to be able to completely apply it unless we're able to make a real life lab setting. But obviously, that's pretty hard to do because there's a lot of confounding variables in reality. Uh, just before I wrap up, I'm not going to go into politics much at all. I'm just kind of sparking conversation. Um, I kind of feel like this could apply a little bit right now to what we're seeing kind of in the U.S., which with how far divided, like, the left, quote, unquote, and the right are, because uh, it seems like everyone's picking one side or the other, and it feels like each side is trying to conform with the group that they associate with because they don't want to associate with the other group, um, which I think is very interesting. Um, I didn't, like, it's crazy that this could possibly apply to politics, but just seeing how easy it is for people to conform to such a simple, like, factual, perceptual test, it would, I can definitely see it being a lot, simp like, easier to conform to something when it is pretty opinion-based. There is no solid facts surrounding, like, what your beliefs are. Um, I find this case very interesting, though, because I feel like I'm definitely the kind of person that would just, like, go along with the majority, like, whether or not they were right or wrong, because I'd be so afraid of, like, standing out, even if it was the right answer. Yeah, I would like... like sorry. Um, sorry, I was just gonna say, when we were playing, like, uh, Cards Against Humanity over Christmas, and the answer that I would pick wouldn't usually be the answer that I wanted. It would be whatever the group laughed at the most. And so I found that I was like still conforming to the majority by choosing the Cards Against Humanity answer that everyone else liked versus the one that like I actually liked. I can relate to that so strongly from playing Cards Against Humanity when I was younger. And 
sometimes I would diverge and be like, no, I thought this one was funniest. And people would end up going like, oh, that one's not the funniest. I'm like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Like, I definitely would love to say that I'm like, oh, I wouldn't conform. I'm my own person. But if there was like 10 people all saying something is right and I'm the only one to say it's wrong, I'm definitely going to doubt myself. Especially if yes, you like 100%. you're in a group with just those 10 people because you're just going to like everyone's going to be staring at you being like, mm, you're you're wrong. <laughs> like, yeah, you know exactly. I mean? It's like there's 10 of us saying the same thing. What makes you think it's different and that all of us are wrong? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely am not like strong enough in like any of my beliefs to like go against 10 people and be like, yeah, no, I'm right. There's absolutely no way I could do that. I'd be like, yeah, you're right. It's it's just <laughs> super interesting how like this was done in something that is a f- like it's a fact that one of those lines matches another one, and yet people still chose the wrong answer just because they didn't want to conform. But like we were yeah. saying, when it's something that's way more gray, it's not a fact. Then it's I feel like way easier to fall into conforming to it simply because it's like. I don't want to start an argument. I don't want to like, I don't want people not to like me or think of me differently because I think differently than them. And like, there's so many, there's so many topics with so many gray areas. Like, even though a lot of researchers have criticized this because it's such a heavy lab setting and like, they're like, well, we can't apply it to the real world because this was a factual test. But I feel like we still see it in everyday life nonetheless definitely yeah yeah definitely i'm curious as to like Uh, how it could be shifted away from a lab setting to like see how conformity actually is viewed in the real world you know what i mean like um there's just so many ethical boundaries i feel like regarding that i know ethics just make it so hard yeah ethics suck (laughs) (laughs) They don't. Ethics are there for a reason. They're very good, but they make researching <laughs> this hard. Shows you why. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I don't know if you said this, but did they get to see the line the whole time, or were they just shown a picture and then it was hidden, and then they were um, like given three lines to choose from? So, in terms of like Ash writing his procedure, he was kind of vague about that but my understanding from reading both the paper and then also reading people's like reviews and like people explaining it and everything like that i think they were shown the control at the same time as the experimental okay if i remember yeah because i was just thinking like if they couldn't remember what the line looked like that would also influence yeah absolutely how easily memory can be manipulated is like oh maybe it is this line oh my goodness maybe i don't know and then you just completely forget what you saw anyways yeah so i feel like that's a pretty uncontrollable um variable Yeah, yeah absolutely like i think that would be a big confounding factor if they did actually only show it one at a time as opposed to all together yeah I think yeah, um, going off of what I remember from like my psych textbooks, they had the control line on a left-hand side and then there was like a little bit of a space and then you had your varying lines right beside each other um, a little bit over. Oh, okay. So like it was still on the same piece of paper and you can look at both. It's just they weren't close enough to be able to tell exactly, oh, that's the one yeah right okay we'll uh we'll post a picture of like what we're talking about in the sources just to make it easier to understand because i know personally when i'm 
hearing myself say like line one, is it closer to line A, B and C? And I can't actually see them. Like I'm just getting <laughs> confused talking about it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It may be a good visual aid as you're listening to this uh, episode. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Forethought. Yeah. Or what is that? Yeah. Forethought now? No. Forth- Anyways. <sighs> I, I think it's, it's like hindsight for Hi- us, but yeah, no, it's it's okay. No, no, it's, it's they'll be on our website. <laughs> yes, they'll be on our website. <laughs> All right. So that was the Ash experiment, uh, which took place in 1951, which strangely enough was the most ethical of them all. <laughs> yep. Um. So now I'm really excited to talk about both the one Nicole's discussing and Journey's discussing because I think any psych student will tell you these are drilled into your brain throughout school because of like ethical discussions yeah um so i'm really excited to talk about them because they are just also really interesting and like nicole's has a pretty important part in like history as well so nicole (laughs) i'll stop talking would you (laughs) like to tell us about the milgram experiment yeah definitely i will say this is kind of like a ease into the ethical debate like it there are some issues but um comparatively speaking to journeys we're about to hear it's not that bad um but anyways to start stanley milgram was an american psychologist at yale university and he was most known for his research around obedience and authority so his experiments began in july of 1961 and they went on until 1963 And these experiments were sparked about a year after Adolf Eichmann was charged and convicted of 15 separate counts um, or charges and crimes, including war crimes, crimes against humanity, being a member of hostile organization and crimes against the Jewish people. So obviously this was World War II time. Um, This very much sparked his obedience and authority. So in addition to this trial and this individual, Milgram began questioning the justifications he heard from both Eichmann and others that were accused at the Nuremberg trials after World War II. And these individuals, many of which were on trial for war crimes and genocide. Um, So pretty heavy charges. And Milgram started to notice that a lot of the defenses heard were that those on trial were just following orders from their superiors. So that's why they did it. They were just following orders, and so they should not be charged with this kind of thing. The events of the trial and Eichmann's trial sparked the question as to whether, quote, Eichmann and his million accomplices in the Holocaust were just following orders, and if we could even call them accomplices, end quote. So the purpose of his set of experiments, which are now known as the Milgram experiments, investigated how far people um, would go if it involved harming another person, if they were being told to do something by an authority figure. So he was curious as to how easily regular everyday people could be influenced into harming others when obeying instructions. Milgram wanted to move more away from the conformity and its group influence, which is just what we saw with Ash's experiment that Rebecca just told us about. And he wanted to focus more on the obedience side and its relation or influence of authority as I've kind of drilled in at this point, obedience and authority. 
big major points of this case or this uh, experiment, sorry. So to start his study, an ad was placed in the local newspaper and he was seeking male participants for his experiment that would date, sorry, that would take place at Yale University. 40 males between the age of 20 and 50 were recruited from the New Haven area and they were paid $4.50 for showing up. Um, I will note that when adjusted for inflation, $4.50 in 1961 is about $42.10 in 2022. So it was a pretty good amount of money, I guess, for partaking in this. So they were told, though, that the research they were participating in was looking at human learning and the effects of punishment on memory. Nothing was disclosed about what they would be doing. Therefore, there was a bit of deception involved. And I will say deception is allowed, but only as long as it's disclosed to the participant after the study, like a a debriefing has to occur. And there are some... um, some instances, though, when like deception's not allowed, which I'll get into um, later on. So participants once in in this Yale University room, they were introduced to a second participant, and this participant was a confederate. So this means that they were pretending to be a participant. So like Rebecca had mentioned, they were just acting. So they were a part of the research team, they knew what to expect, and they were just acting along, making the participant believe there were multiple participants. So the participant and confederate would draw straws to determine who would be the learner and then who would be the teacher. This, though, was rigged in a way so that the confederate or the actor would always be the learner and then the participant would be the teacher. To make things a little bit more confusing, there is a third person, and this was another person who knew what to expect. So it was another confederate, and he was the experimenter. So he was this fancy guy in a gray lab coat that would tell the teacher, who was the unsuspecting participant, what to do. And again, spark notes condensed because there is a lot of people involved. We've got the participant, the learner, and the experimenter. Those are like the terms I'm going to be using the most of the time. <laughs> now, I feel like it's so hard to describe psychological experiments without like visually seeing it because it's so laid out nicely in papers. And like you said, Rebecca, like I'm hearing myself talk about this. I'm like, people are going to be so lost trying to listen to this. <laughs> but oh, but now there's going to be two rooms. So if you imagine two rooms, one with the learner, um, he's hooked up to electrodes and this big shock experiment doohickey. They called it the electric chair, which was kind of terrifying. Um, in the other room which is divided by like a window you had the participant and he in front of him had this big battery looking thing with 30 different like lever switches along um this battery so the purpose of the study and what they were tasked with um was learning a set of words so you had two words 
both associated with one another. And what would happen was the participant, the participant would say a word and then he'd ask the learner to recall the paired word. And they were given a list of four possible choices. So for example, like say the word was water and lake, like that was your pair. If the participant, um, if I was the participant, I would say with the word water and then say blue wave lake ocean. And then either you, Journey, or you, Rebecca, you would have a choice out of those four words, blue, wave, lake, and ocean, to respond with. Um, So if anything wasn't lake, that would be incorrect. The participant was then told to administer a shock if the learner got anything wrong. And as each time the word changed and they got one wrong, they would increase a level on the shock intensity. So as the more you get wrong, the more you get shocked, basically. Um, I will say that while we know there's a bit of deception involved here, um, the participant, or sorry, the learner wasn't actually getting shocked. Like it was all recorded previously so he wasn't actually feeling any pain but to make sure that the participant knew what it felt like to be shocked they shocked the participants with 45 volts um just so they knew it was real and so their scale that they had went from 15 volts which was a slight shock to 450 volts, which was labeled danger, severe shock. Yeah. So he was given, they were given 45 volts to start. And that's like a little zap. You'd feel that. So you know that there's going to be pain involved. Because of what this study entails, mostly wrong answers were given. So he, on purpose, was choosing wrong answers so that he would have to be shocked, essentially, this um, learner or this confederate. If the participant was to say no or refuse to follow orders, so like if they didn't want to continue to shock these this learner, they were given a series of other orders from the fancy lab coat experiment guy, making sure they continued. So these included phrases like please continue or the experiment requires you to continue then it is absolutely essential that you continue and the last prompt they were given if they say they refused three times the fourth prompt they were given was you have no other choice but to continue um yeah you can't see any of our uh facial expressions but there's something fishy about that i'll i'll let you guys know but I just remember learning about this one and just being so horrified. Yeah. Because it's like, yeah, I couldn't imagine like clicking the button and then just hearing the screams from like the person getting quote unquote shocked. It would just, it would be so traumatizing. Oh, 100%. And like, it's easy for us to just be like, yeah, like they're just flick a button, whatever, that's okay. But like the person flicking the buttons has no idea that he's not actually being shocked. Like we know now that, yeah. yeah, he's not being shocked, so there's no real harm. But this guy, like... Well, especially if they've already been shocked. Yeah, yeah. So they, like, they like, wholeheartedly oh think they're, like, 
almost going to be executing these people with this electricity uh, if they keep going up this scale. And literally, surprisingly, 65% of participants continue to the absolute highest voltage, so 450 volts. And every participant continued to at least 300 volts. So that is like, you would never expect them to actually get that. I say good, not good results, but like, you know, Milgram was looking for those results. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it was a lot. Um, And again, I just want to say that the learner wasn't actually being shocked. So, but they didn't know that. Um, so it's really significant that all participants, um, and he ended up doing 18 versions of this that I'll kind of briefly touch on, but there were over a thousand participants. So over like, and all of them went to at least 300, I believe. Okay. I retract that. Not sure. I can't a hundred percent confidently say that the, it was the a thousand participants that all went to 300 or if it was just the first set. But obedience was seen throughout, like, the majority of his versions. And I get into it a little bit more, too, like, the different variations he does and how the obedience changes with each one. Um, regarding the acting of the learner, though, because, like, like I said, he wasn't actually being shocked, Milgram said in his paper, quote, the responses of the victim are standardized on tape, and each protest is coordinated to a particular voltage level on the shock generator. So starting with 75 volts, the learner begins to kind of grunt and moan. At 150 volts, he demands to be let out of the experiment. At 180 volts, he cries out that he can no longer stand the pain. At 300 volts, he refuses to provide any more answers to the memory test insisting that he is no longer a participant in this experiment and must be freed, end quote. So mind you, all of the participants in this first round of studies went to 300. And so this is a point where he's like, he's not answering. He's incapable of providing answers because of the pain. And everyone made it to that point. I could never... That's so right? traumatizing. Oh my goodness. Right. And like, it's, I find it so fascinating because I'm here sitting, like, we're here saying, like, no, we could never do that. But if we were in that lab, like, what, you know, I, what are the probabilities that we would actually be like, okay, we have to do this? Yeah. <sighs> um, yeah. So really, really shocking. And, <laughs> no pun intended, sorry, um, Milgram <laughs> submitted his findings to the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology, but the paper was actually rejected, stating that was more of a demonstration than an experiment. He continued to submit his findings to the Journal of Personality, but again was faced with rejection, and the editor wrote about the study that, quote, the major problem is your data indicates a kind of triumph of social engineering, we are led to no conclusions about obedience, really, but the math, or sorry, we are led to no conclusions about obedience, really, but rather are exhorted to be impressed with the power of your situation as an influence context, end quote. 
So he was basically layman terms saying this isn't studying obedience. He Milgram then kind of left this paper behind, rewrote it again, but introduced a bunch of variables and their correlations. And so this new write-up was then published in the Journal of Human Relations entitled Some Conditions of Obedience and Disobedience to Authority. So it was then in 1974 in his book On Obedience did he describe the 18 different versions of his initial experiment. So the only difference between them all were the independent variables, which were like the situations they were in. And so the effect on obedience was always the dependent variable. Um, I lied. I don't know where I got a thousand participants from, I guess, because in total only 636 men participated in these 18 studies. So reeling back my uh, statement about the people, the thousand people, but um, some of the findings of these variations include, um, no, some of the variations and their findings include uniform. So the experimenter, like I said, wore a gray lab coat. And so a variation had the um, experimenter actually end up being called away at the very beginning on an important phone call um, to kind of make it seem like he was a very big, important science man. Um, I'm not sure what the stats about obedience are regarding that. That was just kind of one of the variations. So you had the gray lab coat, fancy phone call taking guy, but then you also had an experimenter who, who just wore like everyday plain casual clothes and in the plain clothes condition, obedience actually dropped by 20%. And yeah, and they measured their obedience by each scale. So like there were 30 levels of obedience. And so each one level was a measure. That's how they measured obedience. Um, they also had a change of location uh, variation. And the experiment in one of these variations took place in a set of like run down offices rather than those like really nice Yale university labs and obedience dropped 47.5% as soon as they were taken out of a laboratory like context, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. Um, they had a two-teacher condition, so this is where participants could instruct an assistant, so they had like a buddy with them, who was also another confederate though, to press the button and administer the shock for him. So he wasn't doing the actual flipping of the switches, the participant, he was just directing another person to be like, hey, push the switch. And this... Um, resulted in 92.5% of participants shocking the full 450 volts. So this really kind of goes to show that personal responsibility really affects an obedience rate. Because if you're not the one like manually inflicting this pain, what's the point? Like, what's the harm? You can just tell someone else to do it. You know, there you take that closeness level away from it all yeah, it's um, kind of as if you're giving sorry it's kind of as good. if you're giving the participant like the authority yeah you know what i mean yeah 
Yeah, a hundred percent. You're really just interesting. making them the experimenter at that point. Like, yeah, it's like, like, oh, I wouldn't do it myself, but I'm not doing it. I'm just telling someone else to do it. So it's like they they lose that sense of responsibility. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, they also had a touch proximity condition, and participants were to force the learner's hand down onto the shock plate if they refused to participate after 150 volts. I just, okay, I will say reading back on this, I always forget how extreme it is um, of a study. And it kind of makes me laugh. I just don't the, like oh, that they were forced to do it. Like, yeah. no, I enough. And they're like, actually, it doesn't matter. You get to do it anyways. Yeah, you have to feel this pain and I have to make you suffer this. Oh my gosh. Um, during this condition, obedience dropped 30%, though, um, which I can understand. People were less inclined to make others do something. You then had the social support condition. So two other Confederates acted as teachers with the main participant. They refused to obey after 150 volts. And then the second, um, sorry, so after 150 volts, the first support person refused to obey. And then after 210 volts, the second uh, support person dis um, refused to obey. So basically, this kind of, I guess, is a conformity-esque experiment or variation. Because like, if the two of them are already refusing to obey, it gives them an easy out. Um, but obedience levels decreased by 10%. I honestly thought it would have been more, but I guess because you're already past the 210 volts, like if you're measuring obedience by the number of volts, then you're already surpassed a certain amount, if that makes sense. Um, lastly, they had the absent experimenter condition of the few. So the experimenter was in a third room instructing the participant by telephone to increase the shock levels. Obedience in this condition decreased by 20.5%. And surprisingly, many participants actually cheated in this, in this condition. So they would either just like not administer the shock, but say they did, or they would administer a lesser shock than what was ordered of them. So because they didn't have like that fancy gray lab coat guy like breathing down their neck being like press the button they were like mm, no i'm just like i'm gonna say i'm doing something but really i'm not which i thought was kind of interesting um from these experiments milgram explained that there were two states of behaviors that people have when in social situations and he called this agency theory and so these were the autonomous state and the agenic state or a, a, a genet, yeah. You know what? We're going to go with that. <laughs> the autonomous state is when, quote, people direct their own actions and they take responsibility for the result of those actions, end quote. And then the agenic state is, quote, people allow others to direct their actions and then pass off the responsibility for the consequences um, to the person giving the orders. So in other words, they act as agents for another person's will, end quote. But I feel like with any instruction or like demand, 
those are your only two options. Like you either don't do it and take the responsibility or you put the responsibility on someone else. You know what I mean? I could be wrong, but that's my thought process. Um, for the people to enter the eugenic state, Milgram suggested that two things have to happen. And that's one, the person giving the orders is perceived as being qualified to direct other people's behavior, and that is they're seen as legitimate. And two, the person being ordered about is able to believe that the authority will accept, accept responsibility for what happens. So basically, like, they think that whatever happens won't fall on them. They have a hope that someone else will take responsibility. And as you can kind of tell um, or assume, extrapolate, I guess one could say, that Milgram's experiments are kind of more suited towards a military context rather than real life, everyday situations. Um, you, you're not really shocking people in this extreme of a sense to follow orders. Um, at least I'm not. I don't think you guys are on an everyday basis. Um but yeah, in 1968, two psychologists, Orn and Holland, said that the experiments lacked experimental realism and that participants knew it was a study, meaning that they could have clued in that they weren't actually shocking the learner. Um, if you do watch the, there is a documentary on YouTube. If you do watch that, you can hear some audio clips from that. And it does sound kind of scripted, like it's not... Um, very genuine at times it's very much like a ah let me out of here i uh, let me out i say let me out so like again it is in the 60s so sure maybe they talk like that but it seemed very scripted i didn't uh, actually realize that about it like i knew they were recordings but i've never heard the recording so i just assumed like oh man they must be such good actors yeah. that all of them believe it like but i guess yeah. in hindsight like some of them had to realize that it was fake <laughs> yeah and like it it doesn't like looking back and hearing it now it sounds very fake and I can't say for sure what it would have sounded like at that time and in that time period but like it very much sounds like a 1960s recording um scripted recording um and before I kind of jump into confounds um, I wanted to kind of get both your opinions on what you think was done poorly in a scientific context, because I have a lot to say and a lot to point out. Um, but I wanted to kind of get what you guys thought about it all. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like this one, I agree with Orrin and Holland saying that there's like not a lot of realism, but in the mm -hmm. aspect of like it being applied to everyday life. Yeah. Because, like, yeah, when, totally. where would you be put into a situation where you have to shock someone? Exactly. Or, like, do and something like, like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And, like, I can understand, like, in the rare situation that you're one of those people in, like, the military who actually tortures people. Like, sure, yeah. maybe in that situation. But, like, there's not many real life situations like your boss for say like <laughs> at the grocery store is gonna be like you have to do this you are required and it's gonna be something so unethical that you're having a hard time with it yeah, yeah. like stacking the apples like no you have to do it with sticker side out you have to like 
there is no other option. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Like I feel like unfortunately, not unfortunately, it's pretty fortunate. We don't have situations that are as stressful as having to like lethally shock someone. But in general, like I can understand why there's criticism for how this can apply to real life because it's just like too extreme of an experiment to actually kind of like represent everyday reality for like the average person. Yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree. And did so, like, they, sorry. That's okay. Did they talk about any of the people like getting like pleasure out of this? Oh. Like, yeah. Oh, never mind. Who, like, I was not thinking you were going that way. <laughs> no. Someone who like enjoyed giving pain to someone else. No. Like, do you think someone's sadistic? No. Yeah, yeah, no. If anyone I like, didn't woke up and discovered anything. their sadistic side and was like, oh, wait, I like this, and then went out and caused a bunch of harm. Oh, no. I, I feel like in terms of the article itself, the participant who discovered that pleasure th- through this would probably not tell Milgram. <laughs> yeah. That's true, but they but might But I mean, have maybe noted- they would. Maybe. Yeah, he might have noticed that there was one participant who didn't like have the like back and forth of like oh should i do this oh should i not do this yeah. they're like oh heck yeah ooh whatever like yes just switching them regardless of the answer yeah it's like oh you're right that's fine 450 for you <laughs> yeah literally um but like it's interesting you say that because milgram actually did um do follow up interviews a year later like checking in on all of his participants to see like how they were doing, what kind of they were thinking. I didn't read anything about sadistic people, like, loving what they were doing. Um, But 83.7%, so, like, the majority said they were actually happy to have taken part in this study, and there were no signs of long-term psychological harm. So, like, one of the issues that was brought up in um, some debates was that, like, these people are going through very psychologically taxing scenarios and situations. And like that is traumatizing to some people. Yeah, And so there was a, like the issue of, is this going to cause psychological harm or could this have caused harm? Um, Milgram says no though, that they, there was no long-term effects to this. I I don't know about short-term. He kind of only really mentioned long-term, but yeah, that was one thing that I um, thought was interesting. Yeah, I feel like it would be very... Because even if at the end they go through and they're like, oh, this was an experiment, like you weren't actually shocking anyone, it would still... You would still be confronted with like, I was willing to go so far for something. Yeah. And it would just be kind of like, yeah, you're confronted with how... Like, I'm not like bad of a person you are, but like how far you're willing to go. And it would be kind of scary, especially if you didn't know that about yourself and didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like, I didn't know if I could go this far, but if I can go that far, like, how much farther am I willing to go when I don't know it? Exactly. Yeah. What else am I capable of? What can I do? Yeah. yeah. And also, I feel like in this, I could just, like, I'm really just thinking of the 60s as like, oh, men show no emotion. Men oh be God. strong. Yeah. And so I'm just like, I'm wondering did some of them think about it still and they're like i can't believe i did that but then it's like milgram comes like hey how are you feeling about my experiment where everything was fake yeah and they're like oh 
Oh, Loved I'm it. fine. Great. I'm so happy to be part of it. Yeah, we should let really do it again. Interviewing their children to see, yeah, the <laughs> <effects of> the- <laughs> and see like how they turned out. Of like, so do your parents need therapy? Like, how did that affect them? The intergenerational trauma that was faced because of this, literally, because there's got to be some. There's no way they went through this and just emerged unscathed. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so yeah, and so kind of like talking about the um like representation and stuff like that and this kind of can talk a lot to um ash's experiment and your experiment rebecca was that all participants were men so it was a very biased sample and you kind of mentioned that um when rebecca was talking journey that it's not really representative like it's a college sample population it's all men and it was self-selected. So this one participants saw an ad in the newspaper and had to take it upon themselves to contact them at Yale and be like, I want to volunteer. I want to participate in this. And so like a lot of these people may have this volunteer personality compared to your regular person. So if they have more of a volunteer, yeah, I want to do this. How is that going to affect and relate the I'm going to do this when it comes to shocking someone, you know? So there's a lot yeah, of I hadn't even there. I hadn't even really considered like the, like the volunteer aspect of that, but you're totally right. But it's like, even if like looking past like college aged men, looking past like people who are willing to volunteer at most, we're still only getting 50% of the population represented in like all of these studies from like the fifties to like eighties. <laughs> yeah (laughs) like it's it doesn't make sense how like even psychologists still viewed they were like oh no only men are fit for this study and i'm like well what do you what do you think women do what do you just right and so like i don't have like words for that really i'm just like i don't understand why you wouldn't study the psychology of the whole population (laughs) yeah and it just makes so many more questions like so many more questions arise from that because like, how would this differ with women? Like, do we have more of a pain tolerance that we can understand and be like, oh, they're fine. They can handle that. Or are we going to be more like, no, we need to stop. Like, something's wrong. Something needs to stop. Like, there's so many different things that could be influenced by that. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, we would definitely bring more of, like, an empathy to it like motherly yeah like i feel like not to generalize but i feel like a more motherly like approach may play into this in that scenario well and i feel like even from what i said about like were they affected long term i feel like a lot of women would be like affected long term like this would seriously mess with their brains yeah more so than men who are used to like compartmentalizing and like oh no that doesn't matter if it didn't hurt me it didn't hurt anyone else you know yeah yeah um sorry go ahead do you have something sorry i was gonna say like i'm really glad that like we can't redo these studies now because for very obvious reasons they're (laughs) unethical no one should be subjected to them yeah but at the same time because we can't redo them now like we really do only know the effect this has on men like we can't generalize to ourselves we can't be like us three can't be like oh well in that kind of situation i guess I have a 65% chance of doing it too, but it's like, we really don't. Yeah. Like, we don't know. 
Yeah. And unless someone did the study, which they can't do it the same way now, like we'll never know. Yeah. It's just so interesting. Um, and like we said, like you kind of talked about 50% of the population being surveyed with it just being men. They did do, um, not Milgram himself, but other scientists did perform some replication studies, um, but with various cultures. So they I don't know if it, they were still all men, but they tried to tried to generalize it. And it led to the same conclusions as Milgram's, the most of them. But it's important to keep in mind that like the majority are still being conducted in this industrialized Western culture space. So like even if it is um branching out and you have these different cultures the majority is still that in psychology, we call it a weird population, like Western educated, industrialized, RD something. I forget the last two. Um, but yeah, so obviously that's going to play um, an important confounding role in uh, findings. Now, we did talk a little bit about it, but some ethical issues Um one is that they thought they were being shocked. Like they were literally shocking these people. And it wasn't until after they were told that, oh, this wasn't happening. And so I looked a little bit more into the ethics within like the American Psychology Association. And in eight point in section 8.07, it says that, quote, psychologists do not conduct a study involving deception unless they have determined that the use of deceptive techniques is justified by the study's significant perspective, um, end quote, findings, basically. Fancy jargon for all of that. So basically, like, this I can understand. Like, if they knew they, if the participant knew that the learner wasn't actually being shocked, your whole findings are skewed because you're not getting a real sense of it. That I can understand. But it also goes to st say, quote, psychologists do not deceive perspective prospective participants about research that is reasonably expected to cause physical pain or severe emotional distress, end quote. So that one, that one doesn't really fly with Milgram's experiment because that's all it was, was they were subjecting these people to pain. So. Yeah, that one was pretty clearly violated. Yeah. And I will note, I don't know when this version of the APA ethics guidelines was published. I'm hoping um, that they still had a sense of ethical guidelines back then if it wasn't published then. Um, but yeah, kind of. Okay. So we did talk a little bit about the psychological harm that was faced, which again, poses an ethical issue, but I guess Milgram said in one in his findings that quote three participants had uncontrollable seizures and many pleaded to be allowed to stop the experiment end quote. So yeah, physical issues resulting from that, but also they pleaded to be allowed to stop the experiment. This really goes against the whole right to withdrawal. You know what I mean? Like informed consent through any period of an experiment, you have the right to say, nope, I'm not doing this. And they, you cannot be forced into continuing. Like that just completely takes away your right. And yeah. so with Milgram having these four prompts too, being like, no, like you have to complete this study. 
that's just gone. Like there is none of that there. Well, it kind of like it puts you in a state of fear. You're like, yeah, oh shoot, I can't leave. And then it completely changes your brain chemistry and you're just like oh yeah now you're operating from a place of fear and who knows what you're going to do so then I feel like it kind of changes the results anyways because like would they continue if they were calm well they weren't calm so we don't know yeah exactly and so like this there's just I don't know there's just so many things that affected the findings that like you look at it with all of the information and you're like there are no findings like you you don't have anything like I'm sorry but you don't and I get so passionate about this. Um, but yeah, so then that raises a question. Could they actually withdraw themselves? Did they feel like they had the right or not? Um, and kind of just lastly, Milgram does argue that since the study was about obedience, that the verbal prods and like the verbal commands to keep going were necessary um, and 35% of per- participants still had chosen to withdraw like throughout. But I'm like, I feel like your withdrawal rate isn't high on normal studies. So the fact that you have a 35% withdrawal like rate, that kind of says something, you know? Yeah, that's a very <laughs> you know? high percentage, especially for like a, I don't know, for his experiment. Yeah. And, and the like fact that they had experiment. to go through, yeah, four verbal prompts, they were like freaking yeah. out. And still 35% of them were like, hey, I'm done. I don't want to be here. Yeah. Um, yeah, like if it was three prompts, like how many of them would have said would have said it then? Or if it was two prompts, how many would have withdrawn then? Like it's... There's so many different just, replications that you could do to make this study so much better. Like kind of excluding the whole psychological torture harming aspect like it just doesn't feel thought out or thought through in my opinion (laughs) i don't know if that's rude to say but it's in the past i mean it it was an unethical (laughs) i was gonna say it was an unethical study in like what did you say the 50s or 60s so i yeah yeah i think it's i think it's very fair to critique it and judge it for everything that it was wrong for because we have evidence and research now that contradicts it so yeah our opinions are arguably correct because there's research to back them (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly um okay i'm gonna wrap up my piece there i do want to say there is a youtube um documentary called obedience that like has footage from this experiment uh i've put it in our sources i recommend it you can kind of it's it's interesting to see how participants are reacting because some of them you're like you can visibly see that they do not want to do this and yet they continue um so i recommend that if you it's 40 yeah 45 minutes i think it's like 42 something but yeah that's milgram (laughs) All right. Well, Nicole, thank you very much for telling us about the Milgram experiment. It has been a while, like, since I've learned about it, because, like, we learned about it in university, and obviously we're all out now. But it's always, it's, it's like, fun to go back to it, but it's, I don't know the word I'm looking for. It shouldn't be fun, but it is fun to re-review it, because we're just like, how did someone do so much wrong? (laughs) I think now, like, sorry to interrupt, like, Knowing what we all know now, like after finishing our degree and like 
knowing what to look for. Like, it's so easy for us to be like, wow, this was a not good experiment. <laughs> this was a doozy. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was... Uh... Very interesting to learn about again, and I hope our listeners learn something from it too, because uh, it is a pretty common experiment, but like everyone knows the name, but not everyone knows like about the experiment and like all that stuff. So thank you very much. And now we're going to move on to another experiment, which is also very interesting, and I did a project on it in high school. Um Journey, would you like to tell us about the Stanford prison experiment? Yes, I am very excited about this. I feel like um, my information is a little bit less um, full of statistics, but it's still very interesting nonetheless. Uh, The Stanford prison experiment. Um, It happened in 1971. And like the Milgram experiment, there was a newspaper ad looking for people who wanted to volunteer for a two-week psychological study on the effects of prison life. Jeepers, I'm unprepared. Um, The researchers wanted to see if becoming a prisoner or a prison guard had different psychological impacts, and 70-plus people actually answered the ad, and they were then narrowed down through a series of interviews to 24 people. And these 24 people were described as, quote, an average group of healthy, intelligent, middle-class males, end quote. So again, all men. Um, And they were separated into prisoner or prison guard by the flip of a coin, which feels like a fairly um, unbiased way to separate a group of people. And they were getting paid $15 a day to participate and uh, accounting for inflation, that's about $110 a day in 2023, which is actually incredible. Um, so researchers set up a simulated prison in the basement of Stanford Psychology Department building. The ends of the hallway were boarded up and the corridor was designated as the yard where prisoners were allowed to walk, eat and exercise. The bathroom was down the hallway and prisoners had to be blindfolded when they were taken there so that they wouldn't know how to like get out of the prison. Um, they took off the laboratory doors and replaced them with specially made doors of steel bars with cell numbers on them. And there was a small opening at the end of the hallway where researchers videotaped and recorded the events that occurred. Uh, researchers had even turned a small closet into, quote, the hole end quote, or solitary confinement, and it was only two feet by two feet and tall enough that they could stand up in it. Uh, Researchers also installed an intercom system that allowed them to listen to inmate conversations and give announcements. Uh, The prisoners also had no concept of time because there were no windows or clocks, um, which resulted in a bunch of, like, time-distorting experiences, And even I kind of found that when I was trying to do research because they just kept saying the next day, the next day, the next day. And I'm like, okay, but which day? Or they wouldn't even like specify which day things occurred on. Um, So I think the time distorting experiences affected everyone, researchers included. So early one Sunday morning in August, a Palo Alto police car drove through their town arresting college students for armed robbery and burglary. The quote-unquote suspects were picked up at their home. They were charged, read their rights, searched, and handcuffed. They were then taken to the police station in the back of a police car, 
and when they arrived at the police station, they were formally booked, read their Miranda rights again, fingerprinted, and a complete identification file was made for them. They were then blindfolded and left in a holding cell for a while. And then they were put into another police car and taken to the Stanford County Jail. The prisoners were brought into the jail one at a time and given a greeting by the warden, which included the seriousness of their crimes to kind of heighten the feeling of like, oh, I'm actually going to prison. Um, Each prisoner was then strip searched and deloused with a spray to make them think they had germs or lice. And they were given a uniform, which was just a smock, which is just a short dress with nothing underneath. Their inmate number was on the front and back of their dress. They had a heavy chain bolted on their ankle at all times to kind of reinforce the idea that they were imprisoned even when they were asleep. And they had rubber sandals and a cap made out of a nylon stocking. So they kind of looked like Scrooge from A Christmas Story or Carol or whatever it is. Um, Researchers were trying to simulate the humiliation and degradation that was felt by real prisoners with these uniforms. And they also had the prisoners only refer to themselves and each other by their identification number. And um, guards and like warden and superintendent would only refer to prisoners by that ID number as well. Um, Something I found very interesting was that the guards weren't given any training on how to do their job. And they were basically free to do whatever they felt necessary to maintain law and order within the prison and to command respect of the prisoners. So they made up their own set of rules and were given a warning about how dangerous and serious their job was. They also had uniforms, which consisted of identical khaki uniforms, whistles, and billy clubs. They also had special mirrored sunglasses, which prevented prisoners from seeing their eyes and reading their emotions. I would be very interested to see how this experiment would have played out had they been given instructions on how to do their job or just a little bit more direction and less like free reign over the whole prison. Yeah. Having the free reign is like, I feel a big part of it because then they just could do whatever they wanted and they like the sky's the limit essentially. Literally. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause not Which- even real correctional officers have no limit like obviously they're heavily trained and there's certain procedures and things you can and can't do to prisoners like there's just a yeah. whole mess of problems with that alone yes 100 percent um so the prisoners did consent to harassment privacy and civil rights violations and a minimally adequate diet when they volunteered for the experiment um i'm assuming they signed like a waiver or something Um, At the beginning of the experiment, there were nine guards and nine prisoners. So the guards were on an eight-hour shift rotation with three guards per shift. And the prisoners were divided three per cell with only enough room in each cell for three small cots. Uh, The remaining six individuals were separated into prisoner and guards, and they were just kind of on standby in case anyone needed to leave or something happened. So... Each shift, there was a number of counts that took place, no matter the time, and the purpose of these counts was to familiarize the prisoners with their numbers and for the guards to exercise control over the prisoners. Um, There was also a popular form of punishment as push-ups, which they thought was kind of like an odd form of punishment, but then there was a lot of comparisons between how these guards acted and how guards in Nazi Germany acted, which was very interesting. 
So day one passed with no real altercations. However, there was a rebellion on day two already. So prisoners took off their stocking caps and their numbers. They locked themselves in their cells by putting their beds up against the door. They also taunted and cursed at the guards. The guards working night shift didn't really know what to do, which pissed off the morning shift guards because they felt they should have done a better job of addressing the situation at hand. Uh, eventually the guards ended up working together and they called in the third set of guards and they decided to kind of meet force with force. And they used a fire extinguisher to move the prisoners away from the doors by spraying them with it. And then once the prisoners were away from the doors, they broke into the cells, stripped the prisoners naked, took their beds out and forced the ringleaders into solitary confinement. And they also just started to harass the other prisoners. Holy shit. I'm holy crap. <laughs> um, but since they had used all nine guards to deal with one rebellion, they had to come up with a different system for the future because they couldn't have nine guards on shift all the time. So they decided to create like a privilege cell where three prisoners who were the least involved in the uprising got to stay and they got special privileges such as getting their uniforms back, brushing their teeth, and eating special food. They did this to kind of break the idea of solidarity between the prisoners. And then after a while, the guards took all the quote-unquote bad prisoners and put them in the privileged cell and then moved the quote-unquote good prisoners back to the regular cells, which kind of just created a void between all the prisoners because they didn't really understand what happened for the like bad prisoners to get moved to the good cell. Um, so this rebellion created a solidarity for the guards and turned the experiment into something real for them. So they kind of stepped up their control, surveillance, and aggression. And this was very interesting. The ringleader of the rebellion was prisoner number 4501, and the guards were especially cruel to him. And researchers later learned that he was a self-styled radical activist who had joined the experiment to expose it. So, like Nicole mentioned in the Milgram experiment, where people with, like, the volunteer mindset came in, and so this guy came in with the mindset of, like, I'm going to expose this experiment, and he passed all their interviews, and so he, again, jeopardizes the findings. I did not know that. Yeah. I didn't either. That's so interesting. All of this information I got from the StanfordPrisonExperiment.org website, which is actually written by the um, Dr. Zimbardo, who, yeah who like ran it all so it's basically just him telling what happened in a way that the general public can absorb it which is really interesting but yeah so um after 36 hours of being in the experiment a different prisoner prisoner number 8612 started suffering from acute emotional disturbance disorganized thinking uncontrollable crying and rage the researchers put off treating him because they thought he was trying to con them to get out of the experiment. So by this time, like 36 hours into the experiment, the researchers were already thinking like, we're running a prison. We can't let him out because he's trying to like, um, he just doesn't want to be here anymore or whatever. So their prison consultant talked to him and kind of made fun of him for being so weak and told him about the abuse he could expect from the guards and then at the next count, he, the prisoner 8612 was telling the other prisoners that they can't quit or leave 
which really increased everyone's feelings of imprisonment. And then not long after this, he started acting really out of character, but it still took a while for researchers to be convinced that it was time to let him go. But they did end up letting him go at the end of day two. And then on day three, the researchers held a parents and friends visiting day for the inmates. Um, Researchers were worried that they wouldn't like the state of the jail and then would demand to take their kids home. So they manipulated the situation by cleaning up the prisoners, their cells, feeding them a big dinner, playing music over the intercom, and had a former Stanford cheerleader greet the visitors at the registration desk. So to kind of further enact the prison, um, I don't know, theater or whatever, theatrics, they had the visitors register wait 30 minutes, and then only allowed two visitors per inmate for 10 minutes at a time, and then they were under surveillance the entire time. And parents were also required to discuss their kid's case with the warden before their visit. Um, The parents obviously thought this was kind of dumb, but they ended up playing along, which was kind of interesting for researchers. And so the next major event was a mass escape plan, which happened Also, on day three, a lot of things happened on day three. It was a very busy day. Um, One of the guards heard the prisoners talking about an escape that would happen right after the next visiting hours. And it was rumored that prisoner 8612, who was released the night before, was going to get a bunch of his friends together and break in to free the prisoners. And when researchers heard this, they were only concerned about the safety of their prison, so they held a strategy session to plan a way way to foil the break-in instead of just letting the break-in happen and seeing how the guards and the prisoners reacted to it. Um, And so their solution was to put an informant in the cell that prisoner 8612 had, had occupied, and he would give them information about the escape. While the informant was getting their information, they went to the Palo Alto Police Department to see if they could hold their prisoners there, but the police department said, no, they're not real prisoners. You cannot hold them in our jail. Um, Our insurance doesn't cover that. That's actually what they said. It's not a joke. Um, They they actually told Zimbardo that their insurance was, oh my gosh. Yeah, like if something happened to the prisoners while they were being held in jail, they didn't have insurance that would like protect them or whatever no way that's That's crazy (laughs) it's also crazy how like coming into day three even the researchers are no longer unbiased and they're like acting as if they are the prison guards that like the participants are and they're like oh we got to support the guards and it's like man i think you're solving your own hypothesis right now (laughs) literally yeah they become super biased it's actually crazy Um, Okay, so the second plan was to dismantle the prison after the visitors had left, bring in more guards, chain the prisoners together, blindfold them, and take them to a fifth floor storage room until after the break-in occurred. It was actually surprising how often these prisoners were blindfolded, like it's actually kind of really upsetting. Um, And so with the prisoners removed from where the jail was, the only only the head researcher would be, like, in the prison, and he would tell the people who had broken in that, oh, like, the experiment's over, and everyone had gone home, like, see you guys later, 
And then once the people who had broken in left, they would bring everyone back in and resume the experiment as if nothing had happened. And that is so, so uh, screwed up. They're even lying to the public at this point. Like the prisoners literally. realistically in the setting have no access to the media. So why do they need to lie to the public at this point? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, just crazy. Unbelievable. And yeah, so while the head researcher is sitting there waiting for the break-in, um, one of his colleagues stopped in to see kind of like what the experiment was all about and like check out the area. And so they talked for a little bit. And then the colleague asked him what the independent variable was in the study. And he got like really mad about it because he was so preoccupied with the impending break-in that he didn't want to be questioned on his experiment. And this is kind of when he was thinking he realized that he was thinking more like a prison superintendent than a research psychologist. And so it kind of was like, a, oh, hey, I need to calm down. This is just an experiment. Um, it's also worth noting that the break-in didn't actually happen, which made the researchers and the guards very mad because they hadn't collected any data that day and they kind of felt that someone needed to pay for their wasted time which is a terrible mindset for even the researchers to have. Like, are you kidding me? So the guards increased their level of harassment and humiliation. They forced the prisoners to clean out toilet bowls with their bare hands, do push-ups, jumping jacks, etc. Um, they also made counts last for hours just for fun. Um, also At that point, how is it even fun for the guards like at that point i'd be like okay i'm tired i want to go home now we're done the count like literally like is there god is there yeah like that much adrenaline associated with having that much power over people that you're just willing to do that yeah it's just i have some discussion questions at the end that oh man just gets me going so um uh, also on day three i think they invited a catholic priest to come in and talk to the prisoners the prisoners all introduced themselves by their number which was very interesting to researchers they no longer identified with their names i guess and the priest asked them what they were doing to get out of prison and he kind of explained to them that the only way they could get out was with a lawyer and he then offered to speak with their parents and tell them to get in contact with a lawyer, which a few of the prisoners accepted. And he did actually reach out to their parents and tell them to get a lawyer. And then those parents, like, reached out to the researchers and were like, hey, we want to get a lawyer. So then they talked to the lawyer. And then they brought the lawyer in to talk to the prisoners. But, like, everyone involved knew it was just an experiment. Um, They're going yeah, so way too in-depth with this. No kidding, right? And so this really blurred the lines of reality for everyone involved because even researchers at this point couldn't tell what was real and what was fake and so um there was one prisoner who would not speak to the priest because he was feeling sick he refused to eat and he wanted to see a doctor so prisoner number 819 was eventually convinced to talk to the priest and superintendent who was the lead researcher to determine what kind of doctor he needed he ended up breaking down crying and like sobbing hysterically um the lead researcher took off the prisoner's chain and cap and said that he could rest in a room next to the prison yard um but while prisoner 819 was talking to them the guards had lined up the other prisoners and gotten them to chant 
quote, prisoner 819 is a bad prisoner. Because of what prisoner 819 did, my cell is a mess, Mr. Correctional Officer, end quote. So they were kind of just like screaming, prisoner 819 is bad. And so prisoner 819 could hear this where he was talking to the superintendent. Um, And so then he started sobbing even more uncontrollably. And um, the lead researcher gave him the offer to leave, but he didn't take it because he wanted to prove that he wasn't a bad prisoner. No, I'd be out. I'd be like, yep, okay, bye. Thanks. Yeah. I do not care. I will never see these people again in my life, hopefully. I'm out. Yeah, right? So when he said, no, like, I need to prove I'm not a bad prisoner, the lead researcher said, quote, listen, you're not 819. You are his name. I don't know his name. Um, And my name is Dr. Zimbardo. I am a psychologist, not a prison superintendent. And this is not a real prison. This is just an experiment. And those are students, not prisoners, just like you. Let's go. End quote which kind of got him to calm down and stop crying. And it's such an interesting shift from the day before when he was like, oh no, this guy's trying to like con me to get out of here. And now he's like, oh my gosh, you need some help. Like, I will help you. Yeah, it sounds like someone helped him come to his senses. And he's like, oh yeah, this is my psychological study. This is so wrong. (laughs) Yeah, literally. Um, So then on day four... The prisoners were brought before a parole board, and so this parole board was composed of department secretaries and graduate students who were strangers to the prisoners, and some remarkable things happened during the parole hearings, one of which included that when the prisoners were asked if they would forfeit the money they were getting paid to participate if they got paroled, and most said yes, so they would rather just get out of the prison than actually get the money, which by day four would have been almost $500 in today's dollars, and I think $60 um, then. For college students? That's a lot of friggin' money. That's a lot of money, yeah. And so they ended the hearings by sending the prisoners back to their cells and told them they would consider their pleas, uh, even though they had just, even though if the prisoners had just, like, quit the experiment, they would get to go home and get paid, but their sense of reality had shifted so much that they could no longer see the experiment as an experiment. It was a real-life situation that was happening to them now. And then by day five, we kind of see an emergence of three different types of guards. So we have guards that are tough but fair and follow prison rules, which guards made up. Uh, Guards that are quote-unquote good guys who did favors for the prisoners and never punished them. Uh, guards that were hostile, arbitrary, and inventive in their torture, and they enjoyed their power over the prisoners and were quite mean. Um, Interestingly enough, none of the personality tests performed at the beginning were able to predict this behavior or who would fall into these three different types of guards. And the only link between personality and prison behavior was that prisoners with a high degree of authoritarianism lasted longer in the authoritarian prison environment than others. Um, That makes sense to me. So there was also a number of coping mechanisms being used by prisoners. Some would fight the guards. Others did everything the guards asked. One prisoner developed a psychosomatic rash all over his body when he was told his parole was denied. So again, this was a very real situation for the prisoners. 
And by this time, which is day five, guards had complete control over the prison and had blind obedience of each prisoner. That's it's hard to yeah, it's hard to believe that only five days, like these people fully believe they're in a prison kind of situation. In yeah, just five and it, days. And they're just regular college students getting paid to be there. Literally. It makes me think that because of the way they were taken, they didn't actually know that this was the experiment. It makes me think that they thought they were actually arrested and maybe only the guards knew it was an experiment. That's food for thought. I've never thought about that, but that's because really interesting to think about. Yeah, to be, like, especially for the first prisoner after 36 hours who started, like, really freaking out. To me, it would be like, I'm just in a prisoner setting. But again, I wasn't there. I don't know how I would react. But it feels to me like that was a really quick turnaround to start um, deteriorating. But... Do you... Oh, yeah. Sorry. As I say, do you mention at all... um how long the study was supposed to be because i'm pretty sure that it was supposed to be like two weeks three weeks yeah it's two weeks long they called it off on day six yeah yeah says a lot it really does especially with yeah what we've seen about the researchers becoming so obsessed with this experiment um So the final act of rebellion was when prisoner number 416 was admitted as a standby prisoner. So he hadn't been built up to the level of harassment that the prisoners were experiencing. And so he was being told that quitting was impossible and that it was a real prison and was like thrown to the wolves pretty much. And so he coped by going on a hunger strike in the hopes that it would force them to release him. Uh, But it just got him thrown into solitary confinement for three hours, even though they had a limit of one hour on putting people in solitary confinement. So Having no clocks or windows, I can't imagine how long that screwed him up. Like, he probably thought it was an hour, but it felt like an eternity. Yeah, right? I can't even imagine. And you you just stand there. Like, it's hardly big enough for you to even just sit down. Um... So he still refused to eat after getting out of solitary confinement and the other prisoners viewed him as a troublemaker. And so the head guard actually gave the prisoners a choice of giving up their blankets for the night and having 416 released from solitary or keeping their blankets and keeping 416 in solitary confinement. And so all the prisoners kept their blankets. And so officials had to, like, step in and release him from solitary because it would be incredibly unfair to keep him in solitary confinement all night. And so by the end of night or day five, it was very clear that they had to end the experiment. And the two reasons that they cited to end early were that guards were escalating their abuse in the middle of the night when they thought no one was watching. So even though they'd only been in power for five days, It had already gone to their heads. And a recent Stanford PhD student was brought in to conduct interviews with the guards and prisoners, and she strongly objected to the the treatment of the prisoners, and she was the only person out of 50 people that saw the prison to actually question the morality of what they were doing. I'm not trying to be like, women are great, but 
Do you think she, like, besides the family members that they dressed up the prison for, do you think she was the only woman who saw this and went, what are you doing? I do. And I think it really highlights how different all of these experiments could have gone if women were involved. Yeah. Like, it because just, she's... Oh, I'm just kind of speechless yeah. about it all. Like, this experiment is so interesting, but it is so ethically and morally wrong right? for so many reasons. And, like, like this is just the Sparknotes version of it. Like, the, what they did was just terrible. And, like, yeah, the only woman who came in and was like, oh, this is actually really bad, you guys. Like, wow. Um, did you hear that, Nicole? No, sorry. Someone was knocking at my door. Okay. Um, so they ended early, and... A recent Stanford PhD student was brought in to conduct interviews with the guards and prisoners, and she objected to the treatment of the prisoners, and she was the only person out of 50 people who were in there to question the morality of what they were doing. Really? Yeah. The only one out of 50? Yeah, out of the 50 people who saw the inside of the prison, she was the only one to be like, hey, this is bad. Oh, oh, this was Zimbardo's girlfriend, was it? No. Maybe? Yeah, I'm pretty sure know. this was in the Zim- um, Stanford Prison Experiment, like, based on a true story uh, docu-series, whatever, on Netflix. I think he was, like, romantically involved with her, and she was like, whoa, like, there is a lot wrong with this. That's crazy. Wow. One out of 50. Holy smokes. Right? And so, yeah, Rebecca and I were just talking about how, like, is she the only woman that saw it? Would this have changed if there were more women who were a part of it? Like, how does that affect what they learned? Um, so then on the last day, they held a series of encounter sessions, uh, first with the guards and then with the prisoners, and then um, everyone together. And so this was kind of a way to just, like, decompress and to get everyone's feelings out in the open to talk about what happened, what they saw, and to kind of share their experiences. So it was like a giant debrief. And they also wanted to have it like a moral re-education by discussing conflicts posed by the situation and their behavior. And so kind of like reviewing moral alternatives that had been available to them that they didn't choose um, so that they would be better equipped to deal with it in the future. And I think that I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that meeting because the resentment that the prisoners must have felt towards the guards and the experimenters has to be just insane. I'm shocked nothing happened. Like how you said with Milgram's experiment, like the after effects and like, oh, the children are your parents like traumatized. Like, yeah, I'm shocked they didn't go on to harm others or like take that superiority complex the guards further right and I don't know if they did I didn't really look into that but that's something that I definitely would like to look into because Mm -hmm. there's got to be something more yeah I agree so the study was terminated on August 20th 1971 six days after it started um it was supposed to last two weeks and This is just some extra information, but, like, a riot erupted in Attica Prison in New York that ended just terribly. And so one of the major demands that they had was that the prisoners be treated like human beings. Um, Which further, I don't know, researchers could really sympathize with this after only six days of the simulation. 
It's also like interesting that this is a real life prison and they're like, they have to ask to be treated like humans. Like the fact that yeah. they're just not to begin with um, is interesting. Well, yeah. And the fact that this happened in 1971 and conditions have not mm-hmm. gotten better. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the, the whole, States. if you treat them like an animal, they're going to act like an animal thing. Like very much so. It, yeah. Yeah, so, like, one question that the researchers were left with was how do we change the institution so that they promote human values rather than destroy them? And there was one quote, um, I don't remember exactly what it said, from one of the people in this experiment. He was like, I'm not rehabilitated. I'm not, this did not help me. Or it was like they compared a quote from one of the prisoners to an actual real-life prisoner and they were almost identical. And I was like, you were in this simulation for six days. And it wow. wasn't even a, like, real prison. Wow. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so now I just have, like, some discussion questions, which is, like, what are the effects of living in an environment with no clocks, no view of the outside world, and minimal sensory simulation? Which, like, that... I would be screwed up. Like, I... Mm-hmm check my watch every like 10 minutes because i just have no concept of time yeah same it would feel like weeks for me yeah and i think that played a huge role in this is because like i guess guards would kind of know because they would be on for eight hours like you could kind of tell when eight hours had gone by but like anything else like no there's no way you'd have no concept Mm -hmm. um So how much would have changed if the guards were more structured or given training on how to guard a prison? Or was the point of this giving someone complete control over prisoners? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like... Sorry. (laughs) I was just going to say, it was like what you said, Rebecca. Like, if if they were structured and they had something, like, they wouldn't have... I don't think this would have happened. Exactly. Yeah, like, I feel like it still would have been bad for the prisoners, because, I mean, they're prisoners in this situation, and unfortunately, yeah. prisoners aren't treated well. But if they were if they were given some structure, there wouldn't have been as much abuse, and I feel like there wouldn't have been as much mental torment as they went through. Exactly. Yeah, I, th- I think they would have, I think the prisoners would have been able to better, like distinguish that it was an experiment like they could step outside of it and be like no this is just an experiment these they're just following orders in a sense like i guess that could kind of come back to obedience is like these guards are taking orders from the higher ups exactly so they'd have that distinguishing feature yeah so like it's just yeah i feel like they definitely should have given the guards some sort of like guidelines or something yeah. I agree. Um, so, and then we kind of saw like the dangers of the principal investigator um, or like researcher assuming the role of this prison superintendent. Yeah. So, like, what were the dangers of the principal, a researcher assuming the role of the prison superintendent? It caused him to be just super unbiased and really yeah. immerse himself in the role. He almost like became a study participant in a way Mm -hmm. because he yeah he it's kind of like what the guards did like they took on that superiority complex personality and they he 
yeah like you had talked about like he lost sight of the goal the goal the research goal like it didn't it wasn't research it was prison at that point yeah yeah definitely um and yeah so like all the prisoners were happy the experiment was over but the guards were sad that it ended early um which kind of like it's just it's so crazy to see how easily people take advantage when they are given power over people well, yeah, like, like that were... really shows how vastly different their roles were. Like one yeah. group was being mentally tormented and one group was getting enjoyment about causing that mental torment. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and then like the last question I just have, which I kind of already talked about, which is just like, did participants know this was an experiment even though they signed up for it? Like, did they know yeah. that was what they had signed up for? Because that... that view that knowledge changes because once you are subjected to the kind of stuff they were subjected to like oh this is like beyond an experiment like what is it that they're actually studying at this point because so much is going on exactly yeah and then like also like the not letting them leave sort of thing and being like oh they're trying to fool us they're trying to escape it's like no they're trying to use their informed consent to leave your study exactly yeah it shouldn't be that hard big thing that's (laughs) Like, back to the Milgram, like, why are you, it just, you, you're taking away someone's right to withdraw from this experiment. Like, literally, I don't understand it. Yeah. But yeah, so that's all I have for the Stanford prison experiment. It was, it's A just lot. so <laughs> unethical and I can't even imagine. And I would like to redo it with these things in place, but obviously we can't do that. So, yeah, I feel like as horrendous as like especially the stanford prison experiment but like as bad as the milgram and like um i guess not necessarily controversial but just like the findings of ashes is like even though they were bad for the most part like we learned so much from them like we can sit here now and have this conversation and be like that was so morally wrong like this went wrong on so many spots but like if it went right or if it didn't happen, like, would we still as psych students and as people who want to learn, like be asking these same questions, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, sorry. I was just going to say like, it sucks that people had to go through these, so like such unethical situations, but Mm -hmm. unfortunately we wouldn't have got to where we are today as soon as we did without these unethical cases. Yeah. Exactly. And we wouldn't yeah. know that it's morally wrong if we hadn't done it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like you had to cross the line to know there was a line there. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much journey for educating us on the Stanford prison experiment. Um, I hope our listeners enjoyed learning about all three of these. They got, as we discussed in the beginning, um, as each one progressed, they each got progressively worse in terms of ethics. Um, But they were all really important to like the history of modern psychology and understanding conformity, obedience, and authority, which is like, they're all pretty mingled together. So it's pretty relevant to to talk about. Um, yeah, but it was very interesting, and I love talking about 
psych studies. They're just, they're so fascinating because they teach us a little bit more about ourselves that we might not have known. Um, But with that being said, we are (laughs) slightly moving on from psych studies. (laughs) Uh, Our next topic is going to be mass psychogenic disorders. So we're going to have two topics in this one. It's going to be the Havana syndrome and the dancing plague. Um, I'm really excited about this episode. I actually forgot we planned it. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I'm really excited to talk about these because I find mass psychogenic disorders like so fascinating. And it's like, how does this happen? Yeah. Um, But yeah, besides that, um, I have a really bad joke like just not like it's just a not good joke and i was trying to find them and most psychology jokes are so specific to like knowing the psychologist (laughs) they're making the joke about but this one kind of made me giggle and now i've lost it all right what was waldo going to psychotherapy for why his dad left him oh I don't know. He <laughs> just wanted quiet. he just wanted to find himself. Oh, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. I'm proud of him for taking that step. Good job, Waldo. I know. It, it's a pretty hard step, but it's an important one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So with cheesy jokes out of the way, uh, Nicole, where can people find us? People can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. We are most active on Instagram and Facebook, so definitely catch us there. We have Twitter at WT Forensics PC. Not so active on that, I'll say. Um, but then we also have our website, whattheforensics.ca, and our email, whattheforensics at gmail.com. Our website, you'll find all of our sources. We'll try and put some source images there too. Um, and, you know, a little bit about us, uh, ourselves, our episodes, and all that fun stuff. Amazing. Thank you, Nicole. Um, so just before we go, uh, we would love it if you guys gave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or any of the other ones that you have found us on. Uh, we would love to read them, and it also just really helps with our... Um, performance i guess and like helping it kind of reach more of an audience we would really really appreciate if you guys took out the time if you enjoy our podcast uh and with that being said this has been another episode of what the forensics we really hope you enjoyed it uh i know that i did and we hope that we will see you next time just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field we are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week.